Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Well, we are going to be looking in uh, the book of Mark, uh, the first 15 verses of Mark chapter 1. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible, uh, flip there on your app, or you can follow along on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of Scripture. Hear now the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray together. Resurrected, reigning Lord Jesus Christ, we are so thankful for who you are and for what you have accomplished on our behalf, for our sake, for the glory of the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that will be accomplished or happen spiritually today by my words alone. But you, Lord Jesus, as you come and as you speak and as your Holy Spirit ministers to your people, mountains can be moved. You're powerful. You reign. You are the Son of God. And we submit to you, asking that you would give both illumination, courage, and power to walk out the words that you have given to us so that we might be better followers of you, more clearly adoring and treasuring you, and that, Jesus, you would receive glory. Father, you would receive glory as your Holy Spirit is ministering among us today. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. In 1978, Superman, the movie with Christopher Reeve, was made. It begins with an intergalactic scene on planet Krypton. There is a man named Jarell who foresees uh, Krypton's demise, and he sends his son Kal-El in a pod to Earth. Kal-El is three when discovered in uh, the fictitious town of Smallville, Kansas by the Kents. I think it's fictitious. I don't know. I could be wrong. There might be a Smallville, Kansas. 
and they raise him as their own child, and they call him Clark Kent. And, and along the way, they discover that he has superhuman ability. Clark's whole life is spent hiding his true identity, if you've seen the movie or read the comic books. The movie and the story of Superman is in some ways about Clark's journey to self, to his true identity, who he really is. Is he nerdy Clark, the reporter who fawns over Lois Lane? Will he remove his spectacles, dawn tights, and, and a cape as some sort of humanitarian superhero? Viewers understand where he came from and, and why he's different. When you're watching this, you get it. You understand that. But the story's characters are wrestling along with Clark as the story goes on. And the main question for Clark is, what's his true identity? In some ways, that's what's going on in the book of Mark and why Mark was written. Mark, the main question of Mark surrounds the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? Who is he? Where did he come from? Is he a superhuman humanitarian? Is he some sort of religious rebel? A political leader? Is he a sage sitting on top of a mountain? Is he the greatest of many good men? This is the most important question in all of life. Who is Jesus? There's no question more important to answer than to get straight on the question of who is Jesus. And Mark's gospel answers that question for us. In fact, the title of this message is Who is Jesus? Now, Mark does something for us in this, this book. He gives important context. He helps us to understand that Jesus didn't drop into earth from outer space. His days were ordained in eternity past. But to grasp who he is, to grasp his identity, we must go deeper. We must understand his person and his work. Mark helps us to do that. He focuses us right there. Now, you might be asking, okay, what does that have to do with where we are in church life? Well, I selected this text as, as Brett and I talked a little bit to fit with where you have been in your catechism series. You've been wrestling with some of the same questions together as a church family. So I, my hope today is that this sermon will reinforce you in the truth that you've already been hearing from a, a bit of a different angle. But, but Mark is not just giving info. It's not just Mark teaching some data. This text has a claim on our lives. This text demands response. It, it asks you and I a question. How will you, how will I respond to the resurrected Jesus? What will we do with this man, Jesus? And Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 that I just read, does at least two things. It teaches... That Jesus is God's son who came to deliver God's people. And it also demands a response. It demands right response. And that right response is this. Believe in him and follow him. So it teaches us that Jesus is God's son who came to deliver God's people. But then it makes a claim on us. What will you do with Jesus? The right response is to believe in him and follow him. Now let me give you just a bit of context, a little, a little bit of background um, as uh, we, we jump into this 
maybe you're not super familiar with uh, how uh, Mark is structured. The, the book of Mark is officially titled The Gospel According to Mark. The gospel, the gospel message is that simply Jesus came to save sinners. And there are four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four, four vignettes, so to say, of, um, of this gospel message that Jesus came to save sinners. And in these four retellings, there's some overlap between them, and they support one another. So there are four perspectives from four different angles, all telling, all looking at the same story, the, the saving work of Jesus Christ. And they emphasize various facets for various audiences and various purposes. So, for instance, Matthew is written to help Jewish people embrace Jesus as the long-foretold Messiah. Luke is a historical account that's meant to be coupled together with Acts. Luke and Acts are, are, are two books, uh, two, two halves of the same book, really, you could say it that way. And the purpose of, of that book, or those two halves of, uh, of one book, is to show how Jesus, this man, transforms the entirety of the world through his church. It's who we are. John, the Gospel of John, so shows Jesus in his incarnation, as God in the flesh. What about Mark? Mark's goal is to give us a clue, an idea, an understanding of Jesus' identity, and then to call us to immediate response. Now, a little bit more about the book of Mark specifically. It was written earliest of all four of the gospel accounts. It was probably somewhere around 55 to 58 AD, and it was written by John Mark. Uh, he, he is the same one whose mother hosted the Last Supper. Mark was an associate and fellow missionary of uh, the Apostle Paul. He went and planted churches. He went on missionary journeys. And he was connected to the apostles throughout his life's ministry. Mark's gospel, though, though we call it the gospel according to Mark, Mark's gospel is actually a recording of Peter's account. So it's probably more accurate to understand this as Peter's account through Mark's hand. And when Peter was imprisoned in Rome, Mark came to be with Peter. There they recorded this gospel before Peter's death in roughly 64 AD. Now, this book, if you were to read it all the way through, you would find that this is a, a fast-moving, it's a, it's a pithy book. There are bold claims throughout the book, and, and that's not a surprise if you know anything about the character of Peter. Peter made bold claims all the time. Nobody else, everybody else can desert you, Lord, but not I. Next thing you know, he's deserting the Lord. Like, he's walking out on the water, and then he's falling into the waves. Like, th that's just kind of Peter's personality, right? Like, he's all in, he's all bold, but then kind of like some, some high heights and, and low lows. And, and throughout book, the book of Mark, we see that, these, these sort of bold claims. And it's intentional because Mark, the book of Mark, calls us to examine Jesus and to respond to him immediately. Not, not when you feel like it, not get around to it, not, not put it you know, somewhere on a priority level C on your checklist of things to do. But no, A1 priority, respond to Jesus. So the word immediately is used over and over in the book of Mark to convey this sense of urgency. Mark is organized into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 8, unfolds Jesus' identity as a person, which is certified by his ministry. And then there's a dividing point in the middle of Mark 8, 27 through 29, which comes 
around Jesus' identity. Again, this, this is a statement right, right about Jesus' identity. This, it's on the screen for the overhead here. Jesus asks, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God, the Messiah, the one we have long waited for. And then, with Jesus' identity clear, chapter 8 closes with Jesus foretelling his crucifixion. So then the second half of the book of Mark, chapters 9 through 16, focus on Jesus' work at the cross. And Mark makes it clear that we cannot separate the person and the work of Jesus. That's the point of these two halves of the book. And we're going to get all of that in verses 1 through 15. His person, his nature, and what he came to do, his work, are inseparable. His divinity, his healing, his wisdom, his compassion, his teaching, all of this is inextricably linked to his suffering and death. Jesus didn't come to ascend the heights, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. And that's the urgent message of Jesus to us today. The question, who is Jesus, therefore is not some sort of philosophical vagary that we're meant to mull over in a Starbucks with a pumpkin spice latte while we're listening to hipster music. This is, this is real stuff. It's a life and death question. Who is he? What does he mean to me? And how does his person and work direct my life? So with that in view, we're, we're positioned to jump into the book of Mark and see the first point for today's message is that Jesus' identity is the Son of God. Jesus' identity is the Son of God. The, the first thing that we see Mark doing is this sort of quick historical sketch. Again, Mark's fast-moving book, right? He doesn't have time for a long treatise. This is a quick sketch, but immediately in verse 1, Mark's making it clear. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This isn't a general statement. This isn't like, oh, we're all God's children. That's not what he's saying. He's certifying the uniqueness in the universe of this Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ, the promised Messiah. Now, this is an important point because at this time, when, when Jesus came onto the scene, Jews and many others were arguing that the Messiah was going to just be literally just a, a mortal man, some sort of political figure, they, just, a, just a regular guy. And Mark, in this first verse, clarifies that Jesus is both Christ, Messiah, and Son. He's not God the Father. He's a separate person. He's, but he's also not merely a person like us. See, to be called son means that he was 100% co-equal with God, fully divine. It has always been God's plan that his Messiah would be divine. So to certify this or remind his hearers of this, Mark quotes Isaiah chapter 40, which promises a messenger would come to call God's people to attention. There would be a forerunner who would come and, and call people to God, to, to attention, to, to, to look to the Lord. And this messenger is John the Baptist. It's Jesus' cousin. John came and, and called people to repent, 
to believe that the kingdom of, of forgiveness was at hand. We see that in verse 4. He was calling people to be ready for the coming of the Lord. It, it could not be any clearer to a, a discerning reader. The coming Messiah is God himself, God incarnate. So if you hear someone intone that Jesus was just a man, point out this verse to them. Mark applies Isaiah 40 and says, this is, this is Jesus, God incarnate. John the Baptist was preparing the way of the Lord himself, God himself. When Jesus came, he was God himself on the earth. So it won't do just to say Jesus was a great guy, wonderful teacher. No, Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and God himself. Now, now note also here in this passage that we're looking at how different this kingdom and new ways. See, John the Baptist knew it. He said, I'm the precursor of a greater one. I, but you know, it is, as great as you think I am, as, as holy and righteous as you might think I am, I'm not even worry, worthy to, to, to be his foot servant. I, I couldn't even bend down and wash his grubby feet and take, take apart the strap of his sandal to apply water and, and, and clean up his feet. That, I, I'm too low for him. My baptism is merely a, a water baptism. But he, he called you to, to a different sort of relationship. See, John came to call people to repent and to seek for forgiveness. But Jesus came to grant forgiveness. And his baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of debate about this. Does, particularly in churches like our church, does our churches, does the, does the baptism of the Holy Spirit mean the same thing as salvation? Or is that something that comes later on, perhaps a secondary thing? Here, it seems pretty clear that Mark is applying the idea of being baptized by the Holy Spirit with being, being made new and entering into the kingdom, what we might call salvation in modern parlance. My baptism is one of, is one of water, to, the call, it's a precursor, the call to, to, um, to seek repentance. His baptism is totally other. It is the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is putting God's kingdom within you. It is giving you the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So John's ministry of water baptism, it was a call towards spiritual um, reformation. But it was preparatory. And it didn't have the same transformative power that God's new kingdom possesses. Jesus' way, however, is totally other. It's totally divine, fitting with his character as the incarnate Son of God. His ministry and baptism is totally other. It penetrates past the external shell all the way to the heart. It's not just about water in the outside. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that would penetrate deep into the heart of the children of God. Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit, therefore, transforms us. And that transforms us from the inside out. By his ministry, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus fills us to overflowing with the third person of the triune God. So here we are in Mark chapter 1, and we've got all three 
persons of the Trinity working, living in us. As such, everything about our identity, because of the work of Jesus, because of the character of Jesus, is reclaimed, remade, and transformed. I don't know if any of you saw me pull up today, but I pulled up in a pretty hot sports car. 2003 Toyota Corolla. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It goes pretty fast. I can get up to like 60 on the highway going downhill. Now, imagine if in that four-cylinder putt-putt engine of my Toyota Corolla, I decided that I was going to replace it. But instead of putting a, a Lambo or Porsche engine inside of it, I don't even know if that would fit. I'm not really a car guy. But, but instead of doing that, imagine that I, that I installed a DeLorean engine complete with a flux capacitor. <laughs> And then, when I got to 88 miles per hour, I would be operating on a totally new set of rules, right? I'd be time traveling. The outside might look the same, but everything about that thing would be doing something on a totally new level. And if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, you must go watch Back to the Future, because it is an incredible movie from the 80s. And that's what the whole illustration is built on. So I'm getting some blank looks like people that have never watched Back to the Future. And I uh, command you as the first application point to uh, get it on your video stream. Get it, get it, uh, stream it today and watch it tonight. Maybe over the, the cold winter months it will be good, good entertainment for you. My point is this. The outside may look one way. It may even look the same. But something totally new is going on inside. There's a totally new level of power at work. And this was the way God had always planned it to be. He, he, would, he would plan to send his divine son to revolutionize the way we relate to God and to transform us, but that would be from the inside out and to make us totally new in our identity through the identity of Jesus, filling us to the full by the indwelling presence of God's spirit. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about. It's not about signs and wonders, first and foremost. It's not, first and foremost, about speaking in tongues. Praise God for speaking in tongues. Praise God for powerful workings and ministry and gifting that the Holy Spirit gives. But the first primary goal of the Holy Spirit is to transform those who are dead to be alive and to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ himself. So Mark then continues with more contextual info. What about this Jesus? Where, where does he come from? Where was he born? Well, he was born as a child in Bethlehem and raised in the Galilean countryside in a little village called Nazareth, probably about 500 people in this village. And to start his ministry, Jesus came to John. John was his cousin, and he was baptized. Now, why was Jesus baptized? It, it wasn't because he needed to repent. That's not what's going on here. He's taking part in this baptism as a step of identifying with those he came to save. You and I, the ones who do need to repent. This is Jesus in his manhood identifying with us in his humanity. It's a display of unity. He enters the waters to show his obedience to the Father as the one who will bear the sins of those who do need forgiveness, namely us. And immediately as he comes up from the water, the heavens are open. The word, the heavens are open, it seems so serene, doesn't it? The heavens are open. 
oh, the sky just parted and the sun came out. It's actually the word in the original. It's, it's a pretty violent word. It, it, it's actually literally the heavens were torn apart. And this was a foreshadowing of the tearing of the temple curtain at Jesus' own death. The point is that a channel of blessing and hope and access to God is open for the first time between heaven and earth through the tearing of Jesus' own flesh. This moment, when Jesus comes up out of the water and the heavens part, it connects us to Calvary. Access to God will be made reality through Christ's cross work. And then gently, like a dove, the presence of God's spirit settles on Jesus and the Father, oh, I wish I was there, bellows out this is my boy, my one and only son. Oh, how I love him. Oh, how I approve of him. Oh, how I am pleased in him. Who is Jesus? He's the promised Messiah, worthy beyond worth. The Holy One of God who will save and transform God's people so that God would say the same thing of us. Oh, how I love them. Oh, how I am pleased in them. This son, Jesus, came pleasing to God, revealing his identity, all to do work on our behalf. And we can't divide that character from his work. So let's look a little bit more at the work of Jesus. This is the second point. Jesus' work at the cross. In verses 12 through 15, Jesus is driven into the wilderness. The word wilderness is repeated a lot in this. You notice that? Jesus came into, he came into the worst of the worst situations. Death, sin, destruction, reigning everywhere. Jesus came from heaven into that. Into the squalor, into the pits. And he was driven right after this baptism scene out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the forces of evil. And there he was, doing battle with sin. He was standing against Satan's most sturdy attacks. See, Jesus' prime work is, is not, as we will see, merely healing and comfort and teaching. Those are important. Just as I said about the work of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are important. They're valuable. We treasure them. We teach on them. We, we model them. We practice them. But they're not primary. Just the same with Jesus. His, his, his work is not primarily healing and being compassionate to those that are weak and, and helping the poor and the afflicted. His primary battle is the battle against sin. All those other things are important. They're valuable. But the primary thing Jesus was doing was standing in our stead and fighting the great enemy of sin. And before his public ministry commenced, the father focused his mission. He engaged every sort of sinful attack and every expression of temptation that you and I will ever face and, and, and before which you and I will often fail. And Jesus did it standing alone in the desert place. He stood and he re resisted on our behalf. This is the, the active obedience of Jesus that you talked about in your catechism series. Just as he entered in with us through baptism, 
that wilderness place also speaks of unity with us. When you struggle and face temptation, know this, Christian, Jesus has gone ahead of you. He has faced the same exact sorts of temptation, the same attacks you face, maybe are facing right now. And then, at the end of that season, as a victor over sin, he stepped forward and proclaimed a good news message of hope. You see that in verse 15. Now, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is here in the form of its king, the Lord Jesus. Hope, forgiveness, freedom, they're all found in Jesus. But for us to be able to say this, we must understand how this connects to the work of Jesus at the cross. He came to save. He came to conquer sin and death. He came to conquer our rebellion and transform us through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. But none of that is possible without his dying work. The proclamation of the gospel of God is a proclamation of substitutionary sacrifice. You know, in other gospel accounts, again on the screen, I won't read it, but you can look at it. In other gospel accounts, particularly John chapter 1, verse 29, when Jesus came to be baptized, we learn that John the Baptist says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' ministry culminates in giving his life as a ransom for many, as a lamb, as a sacrifice. In the place of our sinfulness, there he stood condemned, substituting his righteous life for our condemnation. He dies the death we deserve and suffers the wrath we earn. So who is Jesus? He's a great teacher, yes. He is a compassionate servant like none else, none other. He is a revolutionary, no doubt about it. He is the greatest of all men. But more, he is the son, the divine man who entered into our mess, into our wilderness to rescue us. The promised Messiah of God from ages past. And above all, he's the suffering servant who must die. He, he must die. His, his active obedience must be followed by his passive obedience of laying down his life at the cross. His, his wonder-working ministry must be pointers to what he came to do at the cross. He must take the fall if you and I are to be forgiven. There's no way around it. You and I cannot be called pleasing to God unless the pleasing one gave his life. And that's what he came to do as God's son. He came to deliver God's people from the wreckage of our sin, from the things we brought upon our own self by our, our sinful choices, our, our commitment to go against God and rebel. We we brought on the wrath of God, and he took it for us. Which leads to the application point, the, the only right response. Our response, then, is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Verse, verse 15 says it, right? It's right there in your, your text that you're looking at. Right response is to repent. What does that mean? It means to turn from sin. It's to hate the thing that Jesus hates the most. 
The thing that he came to confront and to do battle with and to defeat. You know, sin is his great enemy because sin separates you and I from God. And he came to crush sin. And he was willing to be temporarily crushed by God's wrath for our sin in order to bury its power for eternity. We cannot grasp Jesus rightly if we don't earnestly engage in repulsion to sin. Now, let me be clear of what I don't mean. I, I don't mean that we must be perfect to be acceptable to God. We, we cannot be. We are not. We will never be perfect by our own record and, and performance. Not, not this side of heaven. It's, it's impossible for us. We are the remaining sin that, that, that exists in our life. We will always fail. And God sees that. He knows that. He has compassion upon us. So I'm not talking about perfection. Scripture doesn't talk about us being perfect to be acceptable in our own, in our own performance. I don't, mean, I don't mean cleaning ourselves up on the outside. That's not what it's about either. It's not about legalism, making yourself seem right on the outside so people say, oh, look how holy and righteous they are. Well, all the while your heart is far from God. No, that's, we can't be good enough. We can't do enough acceptable things. And we cannot clean ourselves up by putting a veneer on the outside. An earnest repulsion to sin also doesn't mean that we feel the sinfulness of sin clinging to us like a, 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 a dark blood stain on an otherwise clean shirt and just say, ah, whatever, no big deal. No, it means we hate it. We see it's there and we hate it. We hate the sinfulness that remains in our lives. Begs the question, doesn't it? Do you hate your sin? I mean, all of us, let's just be honest. We, we, we all have pockets and, and areas of our life where we sin. We go against the Lord. Do you hate it? Do you hate what that speaks about your heavenly and holy Father? Are you repulsed by the attitudes and actualist actions that drive you from God and drive you from other people? Do you see it clinging to you and you just want to be rid of it? Or do you tolerate it? Do you just say, ah, oh, that's just the way I am? See, to repent is to be intolerant and sickened by the sinfulness of sin. One of the things I love to do with my kids is I, I coach their soccer teams, and, um, and I'm a bit of a, a perfectionist. I'm not making an excuse. There's sinful pride in that, but I'm getting to another sin, so hang with me here. Um, and one of my daughters um, that I coach, is she's a, she's a good player. Um, she's a pretty meek and mild kid, though, and she, um, she's earnest. She tries hard. Um, but, uh, but there are some patterns in her life, parenting patterns, that we're working through. And one of the, the sin patterns that I struggle with is when I'm correcting and some, one of my kids is not getting it quickly enough, according to my own standards. I can get really impatient, and then that impatience grows to anger, and then my words become cutting, angry words. And uh, a while back at a, a soccer practice, we were... We were there, and she was doing something. It wasn't really related to soccer. It was more related to uh, her attention to the, the coach's details that were going on. She wasn't paying attention, and I started to get impatient with her. I corrected her a couple times. I was getting more impatient, and finally, I, I used cutting, angry words in front of her whole team, and I could just see immediately her whole, her whole demeanor just dropped. She was crushed. I embarrassed her. It was wrong. It was sinful of me. 
And I felt so sick of myself, so disgusted. Like, how, I've been a parent now for 14 years. How, when am I ever going to get this? When am I ever going to get over this just anger and, and, and just demanding a standard immediately as though that's how God treats me? I looked at the look on her face, and I could see my sin damaged my child in that moment. I think that was probably, at least recently, one of the times that I was most aware of the need to hate my sin, to fight it earnestly. See, only when we hate sin can we truly turn from it and run from it and see that Jesus alone is the solution. Repent. Repent, turn from your sin. And then believe. Believe is the other side of the same coin. To repent is to hate and to turn from sin. But to believe is then to run to Jesus and seek his healing touch as your soul's hope. You know, that story continues on. Because I pulled my daughter aside and I asked her for forgiveness. And we sat there together and I told her, honey, I'm so sorry. I am a sinner. I need Jesus' grace. And I'm so sorry that my sin spilled out on you. And then I asked forgiveness of her, her whole team, actually, in front of them because I, I knew what I did was wrong. And I'll tell you what, as a 45-year-old man with 12-year-old girls, it's a little bit humbling to say, yeah, I just sinned. And they don't even have necessarily even have vernacular for what sin even means. But to say this, it was a humbling moment for me. But, but when, when you see the beauty of Jesus and his forgiving grace, you want to run towards it. You want to say, Jesus, I want to be near to you. And those humbling moments, yeah, hey, it's, I'm, I'm glad for those humbling moments because I love running to you. And I love experiencing the rhythm of your forgiveness. And do you know how any of us can even respond in that way? See, I'm not telling a story about Ed O'Mara's successful pattern here. I'm telling you a story about Ed O'Mara's failures. But I'm also telling another story about the the success of the Holy Spirit in one like me, who, and you're like me. See, the only way we can run to the gospel of Jesus Christ, run to the person of Jesus Christ, is because the Spirit of God empowers us not only to repent, but also to run to Jesus seeking his forgiveness and to experience the grace of that forgiveness. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit living within us, it's necessary for us to walk in communion with this Jesus. And if you don't yet have relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, let me invite you today to turn from your sin and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this isn't just a call for those way outside to come in. It is, but, but it's also for those who are already part of the kingdom to continue to run. See, we all continue to walk out our desert temptations. And we fail over and over. Where do we go with our failings? Where do we run to find the strength to overcome when we fail over and over again? The only place where we find that strength is in Christ himself. So where you have failed, where you're tempted, where you're being tempted right now, the desire of God and the person of his Holy Spirit living within you is to ongoingly transform you to run to this Jesus. That's what I needed in the example that I gave above with my daughter. I failed in a moment of temptation. I needed to repent. 
I also needed the appropriate grace and the truth of forgiveness to run to Jesus. And Jesus does that. He makes us clean. His blood spilled washes the foulest clean and removes the most ingrained stains. And for you and for me, we need to cling to Jesus in belief that he is working and still transforming you and I from the inside out. That even our failures and our weaknesses are moments to see how he is calling us into his new strength over and over and over. There's another aspect of repenting and believing that I think we often miss, too. I think we often hold the gospel as a, a fix for when we have already fallen. But we miss that the power, it's also the power to not fail and fall when we're tempted in the first place. So to repent includes staring at the temptation in the face like Jesus did when he was in the wilderness to see our desire to rebel and to be sickened by it before we give in to sin's temptation. And instead turn to believe in Jesus. And I think there are some here that need to hear this. To say, yeah, I, 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 I'm being tempted right now. Or there's this pattern where I, I continually give in to, to temptation, maybe to vent sinful anger or to engage lust or to give in to materialism once again. And you hate that sin and you want the strength the next time that temptation comes to, to, to nip it in the bud and say, no, I'm not going to give in to it. Where will you f find that strength? It's in the same person, Jesus Christ. So before you turn to sin, run to him in that moment. Run to him and believe that he's better. Jesus is better. Believe that, that anything that you can engage in that is apart from God here on this earth will not really satisfy you. But when you repent and you believe in Jesus in that moment, even before giving in to sin, you will experience the satisfaction of, yes, Jesus is better. See, repent and believe, this isn't just a one-off thing. This is the pattern of what it looks like to be in communion with Jesus. Jesus fought for us. He, he beat sin on our behalf. And when we see that and we're amazed by that, we say, I am sticking with Jesus because he is better. You know, as we come to a close now, Superman had learned early on that kryptonite was his weakness. It was his Achilles heel, so to say, that could crush him. Aren't you glad to know that the story of Jesus and the story of Superman are so incredibly different? Jesus doesn't have an Achilles heel. There is, there is no kryptonite for Christ. The devil threw his harshest attacks and temptations at him, and he stood he stood for you. He stood for me. So where you are weak, where you fail, look to your deliverer. He persevered. He defeated sin and death. And when you and I are tempted to despair because we continue to fail, or when we see our identity as merely sinner and failure, look up to Jesus. His identity as son and victor has guaranteed deliverance and victory for us, his people. He has filled us with his spirit so that his purposes of ongoing transformation will keep going in us all the way until we see him face to face. So Bay Ridge Christian Church, keep your eyes on him. He will satisfy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for who you are and your character. The Christ, the 
Son of God, the Messiah. And we're so thankful for your work that guarantees that all who put their faith in you can be forgiven and will receive the transforming power of your Holy Spirit within. So we pray that for each one of us, we would look to you and run to you, that we would find satisfaction not in the things of this world, not in self, not in philosophies, ideas, success, materialism, Lord, but in you and in you alone. May it be that you are the power that we look to. You are the person that we look to. You are the companion we look to in every area of our life, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. We're going to come to the table now. Um, isn't, is, isn't it a miracle that God loved you so much that he entered into your suffering and your pain to share it and to save you? I mean, there's another way he could have handled sin, right? He could have just wiped us all out. But instead, God takes flesh and becomes one of us. In Mark uh, chapter 1 verse 15, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. I wonder sometimes what the Jews thought about Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that look like? Well, in the first 15 verses or so of Mark 1, it looks a lot like an unemployed carpenter who uh, put down his hammer and saw to become a traveling preacher. And even by the end of Mark 1, the kingdom of God still looks like an unemployed carpenter, except now he has four unemployed fishermen with him, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. But by chapter 2, uh, the religious authorities start getting a little bit more anxious about the portrayal that Jesus is giving us of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus is attending a dinner party for his latest recruit, a man named Levi, who is a tax collector. And the Jewish tax collectors are, are hated by the, by the Jews because they have out, allied with the Roman Empire against uh, their, their, their fellow Jews and against uh, the God of the Jews. Not Jesus. Jesus says, uh, Levi, traitor to your people? traitor to God? I can work with that. Follow me. So Jesus is passing uh, one day. He sees Levi in the tax collecting booth and he says, follow me, and Levi does. As Ed talked about, he repents. He turns away from his sin and he follows Jesus. Except that in the what looks like the, the second act of obedience by Levi, he, he throws a dinner party for Jesus among his rather unsavory friends. And so, um, you, you know, the, the other thing too is it's funny because Jesus seems to be the life of the party. He's, he seems to be the master of the banquet. And that's what we see in the Bible over and over. Every time we see Jesus, it seems like he, he's getting ready to eat. He's, you know, where's Jesus? Well, he's at the wedding feast. Or he's feeding the 5,000. Or He's proclaiming the feast to come in heaven. Even after the resurrection, we find Jesus on the beach firing up the barbecue, hailing the disciples to come and join him for breakfast. And so here in Mark 2, Jesus entertains Levi's dinner guests. 
And we're told that a group of Jewish leaders show up and, and they crash the party and they're scandalized by what they see. They say to, to the uh, unemployed fishermen who are following Jesus, what in the world is going on here? Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's funny, isn't it? They, they, they come to Levi's house, they crash his dinner party, and they criticize the guests. I mean, if you're a wedding crasher, you don't typically go to the reception and then complain about the guest list. But that's what they do. And, and then from the middle of the party, Jesus answers them. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And, and let's be clear here. I, I don't think Jesus is saying that these religious leaders are, are, are not sick. In fact, I think what he's saying is they're blind. I think he's saying that if you think you're righteous, if you think you're without sin, you have no idea who you are. In fact, you have no idea who I am. And he goes on and he says, a doctor can't heal somebody who doesn't know they're sick. And so today we join Jesus at his table, his dinner party. He's still the, the center of it. He's still the master of the banquet. He, he's still eating with sinners like Levi and you and me. He still says, come, let me heal you of your real sickness, the terminal disease that won't only kill you, it'll condemn you. So if you're here today and you don't see your need for Jesus, if, if you don't believe he is who he said he was, if you don't believe he is who Ed told us he was this morning from Mark, if you think that you're doing okay without him and you don't need him, then please don't partake. This is, a, this is a meal for believers, people who know they're sick and they know that only Jesus can heal them. For those people, Jesus invites us to meet him here at his table where his broken body and his shed blood can finally cure our disease. What's the kingdom of look like? Uh, kingdom of, of God look like? It looks a little bit like Levi's dinner party. It looks like us here at BRCC. Those who have turned from sin, who have turned to Christ, and who hang on every word of the master of the banquet. So if you'll prepare your packets, we will share a meal and the blessing of Christ. For what I receive from the Lord, I also pass on to you. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, we come before you this morning grateful that you have seen our intense emptiness and filled it with the bread of life. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our King. Thank you, Father, that by his broken body, now we can come before you healed of our sin and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Take and eat. And Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning grateful that you have not only seen our suffering and pain, you came to share it, so that by your broken body and, and your shed blood, we might finally be healed of the real problem at the root of all our grief. Thank you, Jesus, for recognizing our, our vast dryness and for providing a, a fountain of eternal refreshment to once and for all satisfy our thirst and heal us of our betrayals, our failures, and our flaws. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, were it not for your ongoing work, we would be lost to our wickedness and our evil. But even while we were still the enemies of God, you raised us. You constantly empower us moment by moment to repent of our sin and live lives dedicated to the love of Christ and to the kingdom of God. Be with us this week, spirit of the living God, that we might be transformed day by day into the people of God that you would have us be. Today's benediction comes from Matthew, or as the Hebrews uh, would call him, Levi, the same tax collector that, Mark, that Jesus called in Mark 2. So hear now the words of our Lord Jesus from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and 26, and verses 31 to 33. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We are blessed, brothers and sisters. Go forth 
and be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.